Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and today I'm joined by Cantor Di Carato, a director at m Hardware over in Bath, Somerset. Cantor, welcome. Great to have you on the programme today. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Absolute pleasure. Now, if we dive straight into things, uh, Cantor, when I say the word leader to you, what does that word actually mean to you? Right. Well, it means somebody with strength and capable of making the decisions and uh, someone who can lead a team and uh, help hopefully for success or, you know, uh, uh, instill confidence in your team. Yes, absolutely. They're all the vital qualities that you've named there. Um, if we look, if we think about the uh, the current climate, especially with the uh, the COVID nineteen outbreak, uh, no less. Drawing on your own experience, um, do you have any advice for leaders who may be um, facing difficulties at the moment, or maybe even looking to start their first day in a leadership role? Uh, people that inspire me. Is that is that what you're asking, or? I'm asking, I'm asking sort of what advice you would perhaps give to a leader at the moment who is trying to lead a business oh. through this time or maybe somebody who's about to start a uh, leadership role for the first time and has um, a lot of difficulties to uh, to encounter. Yes, it is difficult. I mean, I've had 35 years experience, so experience does help such a lot. Um, I run a hardware shop, so that is on the essential list at the moment. Mm. And it's making those decisions. I've made decisions for the staff that, luckily, I've only got one that's vulnerable, uh, or two, actually. Um, and the rest are quite young. So I've I've made the decision to stay open, but um, I, I need to be confident that they are following all the guidelines completely and that they are, um, they are self-isolating if needed. Um, it, it's so difficult moment. Things are changing day to day. The rules are changing day to day. You just need to be confident in decisions that you make and to um, once you've made a decision go with it and uh, just instill confidence in your uh, workers, co-workers and assure everybody that things are okay and just follow complete guidelines. Absolutely. Yeah. What you mentioned there um, really does uh, bring under the microscope just how important it actually is for leaders at the moment to have that ability to be reactive as well as proactive and have that contingency plan in place. You've got to be able to roll with the punches and really react to guidelines as they change, don't you? Exactly. Yeah, because things are changing. Basically. You don't know what's going to happen. And you, you have to, you, everyone looks to you as a leader to make those decisions. And they look for their safety towards you. And uh, you have to make right decisions. And the buck stops with you, really. So uh, staff are unsure. Uh, it generally, you know, they're unsure about certain decisions. They come to you. And even if you're not sure yourself, you have to elude that confidence that you are making the right decision. Because it's like a ripple effect, isn't it? It just goes all the way down the line if, if, you, if you're not a good leader then people will pick up on that. Yes, absolutely. If we take um, this sort of scenario, as it were, away from crisis for a moment, um, 
Which approach do you generally prefer to take when dealing with everyday difficulties as a leader? Do you prefer to sort of dive straight in and get on top of the situation and be proactive? Or do you tend to let things play out a bit and see how issues develop before you take action and be a bit more reactive in that sense? Well, it depends on the scenario. Being in the retail trade, if I think my staff are being abused, which thankfully that hardly ever happens, we are we are in a good community here and we serve the people. But if I thought somebody was abusing the staff or some sort of that sort of scenario, I would jump in straight away. But if the, um, one of my staff wanted you know, made a decision that I didn't quite agree with. I would see how it worked out. And then probably at the end, I would say, look, you know, you did this. I didn't agree with you. And perhaps we can improve on it next time. That's really interesting. Now, if we do go back um, a little bit, um, I do want to, of course, uh, touch on leadership figures, living or dead throughout history, who have been an inspiration to yourself, of course, uh, cancer. Um, Is there anybody that really springs to mind in that sense? Well, nobody's famous as such. When I was young, I was in the furniture trade and I was the youngest woman to manage a shop and also I was then in charge of 16 other shops and I was the youngest person to work my way up through a company. Also, my parents being from India, I was the youngest in those days, not only the youngest female, the only foreign female that actually did anything. Uh, I worked my way up through a company and even, um, so people inspired me. Like, luckily, the people that I worked for were happy to take me on and to let me get involved and, and push me, me higher. But um, as far as famous people were concerned, there, there aren't, you know, people that inspire me are people that just do well and have worked hard in their lives to achieve anything. And, um, you know, that work so hard in their lives and just get where they want to go with determination. That's interesting. That's really interesting. There are a couple of points uh, from that that I would like to sort of um, engage with a little bit further. Um, First and foremost, um, you talked about um, how... um, like uh, good leadership can go under the microscope. It's not necessarily people who are well known that have been inspirations to you. And a lot of good examples of leadership can really go under the radar as a result of that. Um, With that in mind, do you think good and effective leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? No, no, not at all. Because in in life in general, there's so many people that inspire you to to do what you need to do and even like as far as parents are concerned and stuff like that and teachers especially and you know people should acknowledge that and um, teachers do an amazing job and under stress and you know just in general people should have maybe an acknowledgement and somehow you know by in the community saying oh look this this person has done such a good job and and maybe put them forward for some sort of award or something. I don't know. Mm, that would be an interesting idea. Um, also, we're uh, going back to uh, your own journey as well, uh, Cancer. You were discussing how essentially you'd worked um, your way up um, in um, your um, industry as well. Um, did you always imagine then that you'd end up in a leadership position yourself, even when you were younger? Not really. I, I always thought that I would... Um, I always wanted to make a change to people's lives. I always wanted to help other people. And I always wanted to inspire other people because I, I did so well with my job and 
I, I just wanted other people to do, especially my children. My children, I've always told them they can do anything they want to do, and they astound me how well they have done. And now with my own business, I started a business as a husband, and it was just the two of us, and I never thought it would grow as big, as big and as well as it has done. But it is most of it. It's been really, really hard work. Just keep going, keep going. Even when the session hits, just plodding through it all, and just getting, you know, just doing it. Absolutely. It goes back very much to that uh, reactive approach that we were talking about as well and being able to adapt to changes. Of course, you can always have a plan in place, but things can um, often change very quickly. Um, If we think about that um, for a moment um, as well, uh, Cantor, do you think that um, the qualities of a great leader are something that you really can learn and develop throughout life? Or do you think some people are maybe just born with those qualities? Uh, Both, really. I think, I don't think you can. Uh, make someone a good leader or if they haven't got it inside them it's got to be somebody who's got that fire in their belly if you know what I mean and just uh, it's the same with a business a business person you need to have something inside you that just drives you and then when you get you see there's a lot of leaders that aren't good and there's a lot of uh, people that get to the top in a leadership role and then they don't inspire other people and they just they're just uh, not good at their job. So the present government is, uh, to be honest, the present government is good, I must say, in in these circumstances, in these hard times. But, um, you know, leadership uh, has to be inside you. But it also, you have to have compassion for other people as well and understand. And if you start at the bottom yourself, you actually know what people are going through. Mm. And uh, you come out at the top. You know, I have uh, about seven people that I look after now. And you know their circumstances. You know what they've gone through. You, you have to have that compassion inside you as well. Yeah, absolutely. All um, really important qualities um, in uh, being um, an effective leadership figure. And I think also um, what you highlighted there shows that the journey one takes in becoming a leadership figure is also just as important in that um, pathway to development as well. Um, Before we do um, wrap things um, up, uh, Cantor, um, I would like to get an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself, for M&K Hardware, and really what you hope to achieve in that time as well. Well, I'm more or less at the other end now, <laughs> being over 60. Um, but I hope that we can continue to keep our staff going and in their jobs because they rely on us as well with having families and also the community around us. Uh, they support us so well. We don't want to let anybody down. We want to keep going, keep going from strength to strength. We need to get on the technology side of things and expand in that way. So um, we need to go with the times. You need to move with the times. You need to adjust yourself to whatever is thrown at you and just try and ride through the storm. I think, if anything, this, you know, with this happening, everyone's going to come together and pull together, and we all just need to look after each other. 
Absolutely. It's very much um, a team effort um, as a country, as opposed to a one man or a one woman show at the moment. Absolutely right. Um, Cantor, it's been an absolute yeah. um, pleasure um, having you on the uh, the programme today. And it would be fantastic as well to uh, perhaps reconvene in the coming months just to see how things have uh, panned out in that regard once um, the current situation has blown over. So thanks so ever so much yeah. for your time. OK, and thank you. Thank you very much. No problem, Bye. absolute pleasure. Well, we now hand over yeah. to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Trescothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was that it wasn't Marcus Rescothic who gave me that nickname. Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think 
in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but uh, i did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, 
you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you were privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation, Absolutely. and it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, 
they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be 
the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah well so <laughs> was, was I yeah. actually yeah <laughs> absolutely um, now Andrew, in your in your wife's memory you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year uh, in doing so whether you'd admit it or not yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands husbands and wives mothers and fathers sons and daughters please do take some time if you wouldn't mind and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. And so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... Uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary numbers. Yeah, I mean, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight, rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves i can feel your enthusiasm for it as a as an essex fan i i'm still stumped as to i think i'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the oval or a team based at lords I, I'll, I'll get over that but i'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it surely it's gonna be the lords one right that sh sh of course yeah. <laughs> um sanju it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today thank you very much cheers this has been the leaders council podcast thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.